Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Your pizza shop located at 1200 8th Avenue Southwest in Largo offers a great selection of personalized pizzas, pastas, and calzones, as well as delicious wings, subs, salads, and tasty desserts. Enjoy the relaxing atmosphere and scenic view overlooking Pinecrest Golf Course. Remember, for the finest pizza anywhere, takeout, delivery, or catering, call 581-1101. That's 581-1101. Or order online at yourpizzashop.com. sights and sounds of summer the birds in the trees the crickets in the fields the frogs in the pond and the spiders on the road the two liter five speed alfa romeo spider it's summer on wheels hi this is nick mason from pink floyd and you're listening to nostalgic radio and cars Welcome, you are tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com. Visit our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Check out our podcast. If you've missed any of our past shows, they're all archived right there on our website. Hey, don't forget to like us on Facebook. And... Welcome, Cedric. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We got a big show coming up tonight. We got a big show. Yeah, we have a very, very long scheduled interview because we got a fascinating former race car driver and TV personality coming on. So that should be really, really good. And there's a clue at the beginning of the show, as usual. The commercials. This gentleman is into Alfa Romeos, specifically vintage ones. And I had the very, very good pleasure of meeting this gentleman a couple of months ago in Monterey. Our guest is a very interesting guy. He's had a number of TV shows in the past, and like I said, and he's a very, very well-known race car driver. So we're excited to have him on the show. Hey, let me tell you what's coming up. In a couple of weeks, on October 26th, Alice Cooper is coming in concert at the Tampa Fairgrounds. And don't forget, on November 2nd, Born to Ride Jam, which is basically another big concert. And they're going to have uh, Paul Rogers from uh, Bad Company, 
Molly Hatz is going to be there. Fog Hatz going to be there. What's that chick's name? Joan Jett? Joan like Jett, yeah. Joan Jett, she's going to be there. That's November 2nd. That's right here in our own backyard in Tanellis Park at yep. the England Brothers uh, Banshell Dinner. So that's right off uh, 49th Street. Can't miss that. I think 49th Street in the corner is 82nd Avenue. But anyway, hey, Larry the Cable Guy is going to be here on the 12th. The Mirror Lake Classic, okay, a great, great, great car show, uh, will also be taking place on October 18th through the 20th. That's in downtown Lakeland. That's a spectacular concourse, and you will have an opportunity to see some really cool cars there, okay? As a matter of fact, it's right downtown. It's on the lake. They have some vintage wooden boats that will show up there. Once in a while, they'll have some amphibious cars rolling around in those little German amphi cars. So that's a great show. Plus, there's also an auction. There's uh, the Higginbottom auction will be taking place. And uh, with a little luck, yours truly will be there, obviously. And I will be covering that event for Sports Car Market. So, hey, if you want to find out on all the latest and greatest auction news, be sure and check out the publication, American Car Collector and Sports Car Market. Great magazines, great publications. Okay, hey, and then, of course, next month, November 5th through the 8th, in Las Vegas is SEMA. So that is the big Special Equipment Marketing Association event, and that's four or five days of nothing but nonstop car guys, car stuff, just everything. It's cool. So be sure and check out the website for SEMA. And, you know, it's one of those shows that you have to put on your bucket list. You need to check that out. And, you know, it's just amazing because not only is it just anything and everything that's the latest and greatest in the automotive aftermarket world, but also a number of celebrities will be there. So, well, you know, uh, you know, joking around about cars all the time. The other day, I finally drug out of the garage my 1973 Pinto being sexual. I saw that. You saw that, yeah. So, well, it's nice. Yeah, it's a classic. I dragged that back from Arizona many, 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 many years ago. I used I think, to keep it up. I think there. everyone else liked it, too. Yeah, I think they do. Now, let me tell you what I had to do last night, because this car's been sitting around for a long time. You know, you need to change the oil and, you know, put a fresh set of plugs in it, and obviously some fuel, which we did. I actually went and bought some racing 110-octane fuel from uh, the guys up there on uh, Hercules Avenue, the VP distributor. But anyway, while I was... Uh, Doing that, I struggle with the oil filter. I couldn't find my cap. But you know what? Or not my cap, my uh, my uh, oil filter wrench. So I had to go the junkyard barbaric way. I had to puncture it with a, with a punch. That's how you do it. And wrap a chain around it, and then take a screwdriver, and then wrestle with that thing for about, really, seriously, almost 20-some-odd minutes. But I got it. You know why? Because I was determined to keep that oil filter off. So I could drive the car today and have some fun with it. So yeah. anyway, hey, we're going to uh, go to this really cool song, which is kind of an appropriate song. This song came out in 1965, and it's called A Man and a Woman, and it was also a movie. Uh, this was a theme to the movie. It was called A Man and a Woman as well, and I can't remember the name of the actors. Maybe uh, Cedric can look that up for us one of these days. <laughs> but anyway, it's a great movie, and it's about a guy that used to be a race car driver, and it's, it's kind of a love story type a, thing. It's a bunch of French names I can't pronounce. Yeah, I know. Me neither. <laughs> so anyway, and uh, but he actually drives a 1965 Mustang GT rally car. Actually, it may be one of the Shelby cars because they made 16 rally cars for Europe. So it was either 65 or 66, and I'm not 100% sure, but it's a cool movie, so check it out. This song's great. Listen to the song. We'll be right back with a uh, commercial, too, and then uh, we'll get on with our interview. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another 9-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my good friend, William Helfrich. He's a lawyer and a darn good one at that. He specializes in medical malpractice, social security issues, and probate. His credentials are exceptional. He is a former JAG, yes, a military lawyer, sworn to uphold the law to the highest ethical standards. For over 20 years, he was an attorney for the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. Give Bill a call at 727-831-5312. That's 727-831-5312. Let William Helfrich help you make informed legal choices. Hi, this is Jay Leno, and you're listening to my favorite, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman has had amazing successes racing on most of Europe's famous road circuits, even building his own prototype race car and winning the coveted title World Sports Car Championship. He was a reporter for Speed Vision and ESPN. He is the host of numerous automotive TV specials and the current host of Velocity Channel's TV show, Renaissance Man. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Alan DeCadene. Alan, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Uh, thank you, Robert. Very pleased to be here. So, you're in California. You were at Pebble Beach last week. You have an amazing history, an amazing legacy. Tell us how it all got started. Well, uh, it's the usual thing, I suppose. When you're young, you need some wheels to get about uh, for the obvious reasons. And uh, I kicked off with a a two-stroke BSA Bantam motorcycle, which was all I could afford. I think it was about 35 shillings. It was about four bucks or something like that. And then, of course, you graduate into some kind of car. My first car was a a 1928 MG M-Type, which cost five guineas is five pounds, five shillings. So that's about, what, 10 bucks, I suppose. Wow. Maybe maybe 15 bucks. I mean, we all bought these old bangers because basically you hadn't got the money to buy anything new. You looked at all the guys that had inherited money or guys who were making big money all had the most phenomenal cars, Jaguars and Ferraris and Aston Martins. And there was a great movie called Phaedra, which uh, was Melina McCurry and Anthony Perkins. And in it, he turns up at Piccadilly in London and he looks into the Aston Martin showrooms and inside is a DB4 and he falls in love with the car and there's scenes of him driving it round the um, not the Camargue but the um, uh, in the south of France and he's got a bark fugue on the radio set and eventually he just goes off a cliff in total bliss. I thought that was fantastic <laughs> and, uh, and therefore one day I might try to lay my hands on an Aston Martin. And that's how it all starts, really. You know, you you, uh, you you start with something simple and you work up to maybe some kind of ultra ideal that you have about how cars should be. And that's what happened with me. So then what was your second car? My second car was another MG. It was I, I got rid of the MGM type and I got a, an MG TA. I went to a TC, a TD. I missed out the TF. I went to an MG A. Uh, what did I get then? I can't remember what how... I, can't, I mean, we used to change cars almost weekly. Um, because you have a go in something and then if it started going wrong and you couldn't fix it yourself if it needed you know serious surgery then you would be more likely to get rid of it and get something that 
that was better. Um, and that's really, I suppose, uh, the story still. I mean, if you can't afford to repair your car, then you have to get rid of it and find something that works better, doesn't smoke, doesn't rattle, and gets the job done. Were you mechanical back in the days? I mean, did you learn to wrench on cars a little bit when you had them? Sure. It, it, was, it was a necessity. The idea of giving your vehicle to somebody else to sort out for you wasn't financially possible. So I had to learn myself how to do things. That little M-Type, for instance, four-cylinder, I mean, I remember to this day, overhead camshaft, I learned how to take the cam box off, learned how to adjust the tappet. Uh, we knew what the oil pressures meant, how to adjust the uh, pressure relief valve, how to set the sparks on the distributor. And all those basic things stand hold true today, just as they did then. And even t- even today, I, I only will... Uh, have a car myself that I can work on and keep it running. And accordingly, I, I don't own any modern cars whatsoever. Um, well, I do. I've got a 1965 356 Porsche. That's that's because I can work on it. It's exactly the same to fiddle and diddle with as any of the early cars like the early MGs. Well, that's interesting. Kudos to you because I'm a 356 guy myself, so that's kind of interesting. Well, let me ask you this now. There for a while early on in your career, you were a photographer, and so tell us a little bit about that, and then how did you get into the motorsports racing world? Well, it, it, I kicked off after uh, school. I didn't, I didn't do very well at school. I, I didn't actually ever get to university or college or anything like that. Nobody ever mentioned to me that such things existed, so um, it, it wasn't something I was ever aiming for because I knew nothing about it. But I, I did get a job in the city of London, um, initially working with a firm of what we call chartered surveyors. They are kind of glorified realtors, and during the course of that they were valuing the stock exchange and I had to do all the legwork measuring it up and what have you and there was a a merchant bank involved and I met the chairman of the bank quite by accident and he rather liked me I used to dress rather well in those days we had stiff collars and uh, collar studs and I had quite a nice pinstripe suit and whatever and um, he asked me if I'd like to be his assistant and what actually happened is that I was quite social in those days and one would be taking some quite nice ladies out and I I had sort of semi-fallen in love with a really rather beautiful girl and just as I was about to go into merchant banking at a party I discovered that she'd been pulled off me by a guy who turned out to be a photographer and that really upset me because I thought you couldn't do better than be you know a city slicker (laughs) but I gave all that up and became a photographer a friend of mine probably my oldest friend had inherited rather a lot of money and he bought a photographic studio at Radio Caroline was a, a pirate radio station in England and they had this photographic studio on the top floor of their premises in Mayfair. Anyway, he uh, he bought that studio, and so I went to work uh, there um, as a photographer, basically, um, which was great because uh, you could. we had this model book with all these beautiful women in who would come up for test shots and things like that. But, um, there was a snag in that I wasn't really quite sure how to get the film in the camera and all the rest of it, but we had another guy there that knew all about that, so he, he taught me what to do. And so my fledgling career as a photographer took off. And uh, so what then happened is that um, I remember this taking this fantastic model girl down to Brands Hatch. I didn't even know what Brands Hatch was. A friend of mine was racing. I thought he was ra- I thought he was riding horses. I didn't realize he raced cars. Anyway, we go down to Brands Hatch. First time I'd been near a motor race in my life. And unfortunately, the girl that I was with disappeared. And I got very upset about that. I said, where the hell's she gone? He said, hi, oh, she's gone off with, you know. I said, well, who the heck's he? Racing driver. <laughs> 
So um, I never gave up photography. I'm still doing it today. But I did decide that motor racing might be a more suitable career for me than just merely taking photographs. So I, I took up motor racing um, without really knowing what to do, of course. But I had a friend who did. And so he pointed me in the right direction. Uh, we got hold of a car. My grandmother had an old AC Ace Zephyr, which was stuck in the garage, not doing much. So we dug that out, friend of mine, my good chum, Aunt Mackay, and um, we went racing. And it was, in those days, I'm talking about, you know, early 60s, it was the best fun because you would just drive down to a racetrack like Brands Hatch, check in, paint the numbers on your car. They had a very nice lady that used to do that. Uh, stick your helmet on and off you went. And I remember my first race, The um, I think I was wearing a stiff collar, actually, and the clerk of the course came over and asked if I could be so kind as to remove my collar stud before he started the race. And uh, I'm still fiddling around with cars. That, that's how it all started. I didn't know much about cars. I didn't come from a car family. And I certainly had never been to a motor race. And I think the second race I went to, I was in it. Interesting. Now, I just want to back up just for a second. Back when you were doing the photography stuff at the radio station, you had mentioned to me earlier that uh, some of the well-known or up-and-coming musicians used to come in there and you guys used to photograph them. Name some of those people that you used to photograph. Well, we did. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was up there quite a lot of the time um, because he quite fancied the receptionist. Uh-huh. So he'd come up to see her. Uh, we did a bunch of pictures with him on occasions. And then we had uh, uh, the man I worked with did the second Rolling Stones album cover. Wow. Um, when they were sort of barely known. Uh, we had the faces in there. I think Rod Stewart was one of them. Uh, all kinds of folk. I mean, the Animals was a great band. Eric Burden. Uh-huh. And uh, Chaz Chandler was, I, I think he was one of the guitarists. He was up there. He was pretty interested in photography. I th- in fact, he's still going, I think, Chaz. I think he's a big, big deal manager now. And Eric Burden was extraordinary as a guy. Keen on, keen on photography too and I, he, I remember he came back from his first trip to America and he'd been to Texas and it completely blown his mind coming to the States um, And because uh, I'd been before because my mother lived here so um, uh, I knew a little bit about California at least from having come over here to see her but um, and I can't remember who else we had up there now we never had the Beatles up there I would have known that because I was great great fans of theirs but w- one of my jobs was to go to rock gigs with young bands who hadn't yet got discovered and then my, one of my jobs was to photograph them on stage and all the rest of it and then those would be um, production photos for Radio London which was another pirate station around the corner although I was working in Radio Caroline's building I actually my, my jobs came in from Radio London as much as anyone. That's very interesting. Interestingly enough, a lot of those guys that I met, I tell you there's, um, oh dear, what's he called? He's a great kid. Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck was a great car man, a really good car man. And I always I always did have quite an affinity for rock and roll folk. I, I kind of like the way they live their lives, most of them, because it was, well, the attractive things to us then was, you know, booze and women. <laughs> okay. And, and rock and roll. <laughs> rock and and you, roll. You chuck in, yeah, you chuck in a bit of motor racing and you, you know, you've got set for an interesting life. Well, how about guys like Mark Knopfler and uh, Nick Mason? By the way, he was there at Pebble Beach, and he won an award with two of his cars, his Aston Martin and his Ferrari. And, uh, you he did indeed, yes. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I am uh, a good friend of Nick's, uh, and um, I know him and his family very well. Uh, we race together in old car races, and we've often done stuff together, um, seminars and whatever. And he, he, he was there, and I was really 
absolutely uh, he was on top of the world winning his class and I was really really happy for him because that's such a nice thing to do especially at Pebble Beach oh absolutely that's that's mm. the the, uh, the one to win yeah, uh, I know Knopfler very well too he, he's we, we run a little race team together uh, from time to time and um, again you know it's um, it's interesting how many rock and roll folk are into motorsport and if not motorsport itself and certainly into cars and all kinds of big deal players have got I mean musicians have got great cars or are interested in motorsport George Harrison for instance was very very fond of Grand Prix racing he'd often crop up and was a very good chum of Gordon Murray's who uh, whose first car was done for me I mean later on when I had my first prototype it was designed by Gordon when he was working at Brabham's actually he'd moonlight in the evenings and do it for me um because that used to get Bernard quite annoyed, what a, thinking, thinking his men were working for me. <laughs> <laughs> what about Eric Clapton? Now, he's a big car collector, too. Yeah, Eric is, too. No, Eric, Eric's a great Ferrari man, uh, loves cars, <clears throat> drives very well. And um, I think he, he finds his interest in cars is very therapeutic and, and enjoyable for him. And a lot of those guys, when, they, when you think how, how busy and stressed and, and 24-7 their lives are when they're either you know, on the road or in the studios or whatever, cars is a great way to, to get away from all that. Motorcycles too, just, just to go and do something that is, well, the antithesis really of what you've been doing on the road or in your studio. Well, let's Good go. Relax. It is and a way to escape, like you said. Let's talk about your early days in racing. Now, there's. Uh, I was reading up that you built a lot of the cars or were involved in the building of some of your early prototypes that you raced. So tell us a little bit about some of those cars. Well, it all started because I, I'd always had this inkling that you could do rather well if you had the right people to help you build your own car. Um, there was a, a chum of mine called Mark Koenig, who, with his wife, Gabriel, uh, were racers. They had race, racing Lotuses and whatever. And Mark just decided one day he, he wanted to ha- build his own little two-liter prototype. So he, he stuck an engine, I think it was a BRM engine, into the back of a chassis that a, I think a guy was called Bob Curl that designed it. Anyway, he built this little car, called it a Nomad, and it was just a wonderful little thing, and he was very happy doing it, and he had all kinds of, he wasn't poor, thank God, so he had all kinds of people working for him. And whilst it's not easy, what, what happened in my case is that I had been racing, amongst other things, uh, those big Ferraris, the 512s that we had uh, for the FIA Championship in 70 and 71, and those cars were going to, at the end of 1971, become defunct. You weren't allowed to race a car with an engine capacity bigger than three litres. Um, was that 180 cubic inches thereabouts? Anyway, uh, Ferrari had what I wanted, which was called the 312 PB, little two-seater prototype with a flat 12 Formula One engine and gearbox in the back. And it, it was a beauty of a car, really a Formula One Ferrari with two seats. Anyway, uh, in those days, if you raced Ferraris, and I had had various different types, Dinos and whatever, you could go to the factory and they'd be happy to accommodate you in their workshops and you could pull your engine out, have it rebuilt, you could work on converting your car and whatever. So having got to know quite a few of the folk down there, I couldn't understand why they wouldn't sell us 312 PBs. And the answer was that Signor Ferrari felt that private teams could not handle the complexity of the car. Too tricky for us lot to actually go and race. 
um, and the works team which was functioning 72, 73 and 74 um, is where those cars were kept. At one stage and I did get offered, I got offered two cars, they said finally about 1970, end of 73 I think, they said oh, well look we'll sell you a couple of cars, 20,000 bucks each I remember but you're not allowed to race them and so I phoned up a friend of mine who was a collector, he bought those two cars and <clears throat> of course they've become iconic collector cars today but they were no use to me if you couldn't race them but what I'd, were, I'd met Gordon Murray at Brab because when uh, when Jack Brabham retired I had obtained his Formula 1 Brabham car BT33 and I, I had gone down to, to Brabham's workshops in Newhall which is a little village outside London down in Surrey and I had met casually a guy from South Africa who worked in the design office just doing things like axles and uprights and hubs didn't do anything with chassis and bodies particularly Ron Toronac did all that anyway in the pub one day and this is towards the end of 1971 I said do you think we might convert our Brabham single-seater Grand Prix car into a two-seater sports car because that's what Ferraris have done with this PB and he thought about it and he said well yeah I suppose you could do it he said you'd need a special two-seater chassis you'd need special body you'd need all these stresses I said hey fancy doing that and I never forget he looked at me and he thought about it and he said you know what I'll do my best let's give it a try and that's that's how I got into building my own car was because Gordon Murray would do the drawings and we made everything exactly as he drew it and the whole thing this is magic really it went together perfectly it absolutely every single thing he drew just fitted we built the car and we took it to Le Mans it never raced or practiced at a racetrack prior to it going to Le Mans we had a test just to make sure it didn't leak anything obviously that all the oil pipes and water pipes and radiators everything was snug we took it straight to Le Mans and it, it had a it had a 400 horsepower DFE Cosworth Formula 1 engine in the back and I had a telegram from Keith Duckworth, who was the boss of Cosworth. And he said, Alan, I hear you're going to Le Mans with one of our engines. Do not do this. The engine's only built for one and a half hours, as you know, and its destruction will be no good for our company. Please do not go. Anyway, we went, of course, and this thing came out the box and did 200 and odd miles an hour down the straight. And we were lying fourth with one hour to go when my co-driver, Chris, had his own personal thunderstorm at Terouge, which is the right-hander on of the straight he came off and he clouted the barrier anyway he struggles the car back to the pits my guys thump it out and get it going and the, the marshals wouldn't let us back on the track because joe bonnier had killed himself that morning going up the back of a ferrari daytona with his lola uh, prototype and they didn't want to have any more accidents anyway they let us out for the last 10 minutes of the race and we qualified first british finisher and it, it was a great success um i then got a telegram from keith duckworth congratulating me on my great result for Cosworth. Um, but that's how I got started in building my own car. And basically, it was a knife and fork type effort with people moonlighting from whatever else they did in life. We had all sorts of folk there, farmer, butcher, uh, guy who delivers the post, the mail. They all moonlighted from their job to come and be my signaling crew and help out in the pits. So it was, a, if I say so myself, quite a noble effort for my first attempt 
to going racing. And we, yeah, we got a good result at Le Mans. And then I went, I went every year then for another 10 years to try and win the thing. Now, in 1981, was it 81, 82, when you won the uh, World Sports Car Championship? Well, 1980, we, yeah, we won two of the World FIA World Championship Sports Car Races. Um, that was with Desiree Wilson driving. And that's an interesting story because in those days, you got paid to show up to drive. You get starting money. You got prize money. You got bonuses from oil companies and petrol companies and tar companies so that you could try and make some bucks to keep going. And the Brands Hatch folk were having a round of the World Sports Car Championship, and they asked me if I would care to drive with one of their instructors. And if I was prepared to drive with their instructor, I would get extra starting money. I mean, I think something like 500 pounds more than I would get without having one of their instructors. But when I get down to, I said, hey, I'm on for that because those instructors really know their way around the around the course. That's what they do. But when I get down there, there's old uh, John Webb and his wife Angela, and they introduce me to this lady next door to them, who is apparently their instructor. No one had told me that I was going to be driving with a lady. Anyway, I um, accepted that fact. Why not? I mean, there's no reason why ladies can't drive these cars just as well as the guys, you know, especially if uh, if, the, if they come recommended by, by John. Anyway, I put her in the car. I, I did a few laps myself, got a time. I put her, I told her how the car worked, showed her all the bits and pieces. Off she goes. Ah, she's quicker than me. So I, um, we had to have a conference about that. I said, my God, what? But, you know, I, I really know my way around Brown's hats. What the heck are you doing? And it turns out that I'm in the wrong gear here and there. And so the next practice session, I go out and I, I go comfortably quicker than her because she's you know, taught me a few things. Well, she goes back out and goes comfortably quicker than me. So I was amazed. But we made a very good pairing. And unfortunately, uh, we were lying third. And I think we could have won the thing. We were, had the Lancia Ferrari team in front of us. But, um, and the Porsche folk, we got in front of them. Um, Martin Raymond got killed in that race when his car conked out. And he got out the car to check out what was going on in the back of the car. And he got clouted by, a, I think it was by a Porsche 935 or something like that. Hit him and that was the end of it, unfortunately. So they stopped the race uh, quite rightly. And we, so we ended up third. But we had some time left on the engine. I was going to rebuild that engine for Le Mans. But we had some time left on it that we hadn't used up. So I said to Desiree, have you ever been to Monza? She said, no. I said, well, I tell you what, I wasn't planning to go, but we've got time. Let's go to Monza. She said, okay. So it was quite complicated to get her down there because she was a South African and they were, <clears throat> you know, a bit of an uproar about South Africans in those days. We get to Monza and I know Monza quite well. I mean, it's my favorite track. And so I, I go out and I, I put up a decent time. I have to say, she, she was right on the pace and uh, uh, she really was absolutely the most ideal co-driver. But what happened in the race was quite a miracle because it rained like hell. I, I did the first three hours, it wasn't raining, and then I hand over to her and she I win the lead. So she picks up the lead and off she goes. And then about a half an hour before the end of the race, it starts a torrential downpour. Now she's on slick tires and so are all the factory Porsches and the Lancias and everybody else all on slicks. Well, all the works cars come binding into the pits and obviously that takes time. Jack your car up, remove the wheels, put the wet weathers on, readjust the brakes, whatever you have to do. Anyway, um, she's in the lead. So we leave her out there and she plods round. I, I cannot believe that she could keep that car on the road, on slicks, in pouring rain. But she seemed to be able to do it. I mean, Jackie X can do it and uh, I know Hans Stuck can do it and one or two other rainmeisters. Senna could do it, but it's a very special trick that certain people are wired up to do. Desiree hung on to the lead. They were catching her. The 
all the Porsches and Lancias. And on the last lap, um, she had, I think, a 15-second lead, and it looked like they were all going to go by, and we would end up about 10th. Anyway, somehow, she uh, she kept up the pace, and we won the race by nine seconds. I think it's one of the closest victories in that championship of all time. And so uh, afterwards, everyone was hailing the decision to leave her out as the most excellent piece of team management and uh, strategy. But of course, we didn't have any wet weather tires anyway, so that's what that was all about, just leaving her out there because we didn't have any wet weather tires to put on the car. We didn't have any wheel hammers or kind of modern kit that would really you should have for that kind of racing. But afterwards, at the prize giving, the, um, the Lancia guys, there were about 150 of them at their tables, and the Porsche guys, there were you know, a whole bunch of them on different tables, and there was one little table in the middle, and it had my, uh, it had my two mechanics, uh, John Anderson and Don Halliday, Desiree Wilson, and me. That was it. We just had the four of us at the table. So when we got up to get the cup, there was a nice big round of applause, and I think Desiree that day uh, really established herself as one of the most serious drivers competing uh, in long-distance racing. And we happened to go and win Silverstone two weeks later as well, uh, and she drove like a demon there. It was unbelievable. They clocked her one lap for going through the chicane with that the wrong way. She went round the escape road. Supposed to clock her 10 seconds. They clocked her a whole lap. She made the whole lap up. So she is quite the most extraordinary racing lady I ever came across, or anybody else for that matter. I mean, she, she's. I, I think she's the best lady race driver of all time, uh, without any doubt. Anyway, that's how we all got started. That's how we won those those first two races. And um, uh, it was nice to have done that in a car that we made in my little muse house. That's a great story. That's a great and, and something to really yeah. be proud of, too. Well, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I have to say, I, I did I did feel highly pleased with both, well, with everybody who'd worked there with me, so few of us. And to go out and beat factory teams at their own game with a homemade car, working on next to no budget with an old Formula One engine that was at all times pretty worn out. I mean, I only had the one engine. We had to rebuild that thing again after that race for Le Mans. Um, but that was a faithful old engine. It had, it had done all these races so many times, one way or the other. I think it, it knew what was expected of it. And we didn't we didn't rev it up too much. The, the secret with those engines, if you're a Grand Prix race, you've got to do 10,500 revs each time. Uh, we were racing to about nine, nine and a half, perhaps. So that extra thousand revs that they put on it is what shortened its life. Everything wears out exponentially quicker when you rev them up. So I had some quite good knowledge by then. The other good thing is I had access. You could always phone up Gordon and get some advice. And I used to, I quite friendly with Gordon Coppock at McLaren, so you get get advice off him. And I could phone up Derek Gardner at Tyrrell's and ask him questions. So I had three of the great F1 men, designers of the time, uh, I could get a bit of advice from, which is, uh, let's face it, that's that's worth its weight in gold. What was one of the last races, and how long after that particular race did you continue racing? Well, I went on for... A short while afterwards, a few, about three or four years, um, Yves Courage ran the French national sports car team, which he called the, um, it was called the Courage, actually. And they were really lovely cars. They so built a beautiful car in Le Mans. So the Le Mans 
council, the local town council, gave him premises. I think they gave him money. And he had a lot of help from people like Aerospatiali and various other aviation companies. And he also had a very, very good aerodynamicist to help him build his cars. And uh, the guy who had been building for Renault when they ran the Alpine Le Mans team. So I went to work with him as a test driver and also to drive in the races uh, with him and or whoever he got to come and partner me. And we did Le Mans, I think, four times. We did a bit of Can-Am stuff or IMSA stuff over here in the States. Um, he was quite a complicated fellow, well, Eve, but he built a beautiful car. And it was quite nice to not have all that stress myself of just having to do everything, sponsorship, building, testing, and then driving. All I had to do was test and drive. Now, what uh, what powered that vehicle? What kind of motor? Well, he, he initially, when we started, he put in a full house Formula One Cosworth engine, uh, which was asking a bit much to be running them at Grand Prix speeds and finishing the distance. You could finish a thousand kilometer race, six hour race, you get, get away with that. Um, but what he also realized is that the day of the turbo was well upon us. And Porsche had all sorts of exciting turbo programs underway, 935s, 936s, whatever. So he, he got hold of a pair of Porsche engines from the 956. That was a flat six, 3.7 liter, twin turbocharged engine. And uh, I'd had some experience of these engines in turbo 908s and things, but um, this engine with the boost knob cranked up in the cockpit to about two bars would give 800 horsepower. And so what you what we'd learned from Porsche is the, the way to win the long distance races was to put some boost on at the start, clear off and get a lap lead, and then turn the knob, and then cruise around till you finish. I mean, it's such an easy way to win. Where We couldn't keep up with them, and we couldn't out-qualify. With a normally aspirated engine, you're stuck with whatever power the engine's capable of giving at whatever revs. With a turbo, because you can crank the knob up and increase the boost, uh, you know, you get a whole bunch of power for qualifying, or escaping from somebody. Like in Formula 1 today, they've got to use the DRS flipper on the rear wing to, to overtake anybody. Well, at Le Mans, if you were in a car that was um, no quicker than the car in front of you, but he's normally aspirated, and you only had to turn your boost up to go by and then undo the knob again. So it's sort of an unfair advantage that we didn't... I didn't fully get that message until we'd been at Le Mans a couple of years, and we realized how they were doing it. And so that's why Eve chose to use those Porsche engines. And everything Porsche does is is immaculate. Uh, Their standard of engineering, is unbelievable and we, we never had any engine problems or gearbox problems uh, we used a Porsche gearbox as well uh, he just happened to make his own chassis and body and do all his own aerodynamics uh, and Porsche are very good because they're, they're in the business of selling competitors either complete cars or whatever bits they want and so you could buy all their good stuff and use it on your car we had their brakes as well I think they were fantastic what did that car resemble if you had to say the car look you know how like some cars look, you know like the 956 might look a little bit like a you know like a Jag prototype or something like that. You know, they're similar. Well, it just- was. It was a Group C car. It was a it was a two seater with a windscreen to a minimum height of I think 100 centimeters, um, and basically it conformed to the Group C regulations, which which were brought about by things like those 956, 962, Lancia, Ferrari, LC1, I think it was called. Um, those kind of cars, Group C cars. Jaguars built a Group C car, of course. XJRs. We 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 were racing against um, whatever the factories were building for that long distance formula at that time. IMSA was racing 
Group C cars too, but it didn't have to have the same engine formula. The the um, the Porsche 956s, 962s that raced in IMSA had the same engine, but it was only allowed one big turbocharger. The things that Al Holbert and uh, and Derek Bell drove, for instance, were very similar to the Rothmans Le Mans cars, but the engine specification was different. One big blower rather than two small ones. Now, these were all prototype cars, and what's your thoughts on driving prototype cars versus, let's say, like the GT cars? Because it sounds like most of your experience was in prototype cars. Yes. I was a a sort of proper sports car racer rather than a a got-up street car, as it were. It's a strange thing, and it's a good question, Matt, because often when I was driving around, you'd go boring into a bend, and you'd see someone in a whatever, 911 derivative Porsche of some sort, or you'd see someone in a, a Ford of Capri derivative, they'd be lifting wheels, waggling wheels around with opposite lock and all kinds of things in the bends. And I used to think that was highly amusing, that you could be driving something that was only only using three wheels around the bend, because one was waggling around. Um, the great thing about a prototype is that the suspension would all be designed so that you didn't do things like that, obviously. It was much lower to the ground. It's a, it a proper purpose-built race car rather than a supposedly converted version of a car that was designed to go on the street. Now, when you raced early on, and you were talking about your little AC, which kind of resembles a Cobra, correct? And mm. a lot of the Bristols had, um, or the AC cars, had the BMW engines in it, and then I guess later they put the little Ford Zephyr motors in it, and hence, is that why they called them the AC Zephyr? Is that what it was? Exactly that. It had a Zephyr six-cylinder Ford engine, but a guy called, um, what was he called now? Raymond Mays, the old ERA driver. He had cast up some special aluminum cylinder heads, which gave you extra horsepower, and you could bolt Weber carburetors on them. And so today they get over 200 horsepower out of those engines. I think we used to get about 150. But it made the car quite exciting. The Ace Zephyr has a smaller nose cone opening for the radiator than the old Ace Bristol. The Ace Bristol's got quite a wide front to it. The Ace Zephyr has a very narrow front. That is the car that Carol uh, Shelby saw when he went down to uh, Thames Ditton to the AC factory. That's the first car to receive a V8 engine. Had a 260 cubic inch Ford stuffed in it to start with before they went up to the 289s um, and obviously had to beef up the brakes and eventually, of course, they had to beef up the chassis. But the very first Cobra was effectively an Ace Zephyr with the Zephyr lump heaved out or not put in at all and the V8 goes in its place because he, he lifted up the hood or what I call the bonnet and he looked inside and he thought, what a scrawny little engine that is. We could get a V8 in there and of course that's, that's how it all started. Interesting. You know, he went to GM to start with, as you know, and they mm-hmm. turned him down. So Ford's, uh, very wisely indeed, uh, Iacocca, I imagine, uh, picked him up on it. And, of course, a legend was born. But what's interesting, I don't know whether how many of your listeners know this, but Shelby was much influenced by the idea of squeezing a big American V8 engine into a British chassis um, because he'd seen what Sidney Allard had done with his Allard specials with Cadillac engines. Um, he, he'd done that in South London just after World War II. Cadillac would sell you one of their overhead valve engines, which you could then do what you like with, crate lump. So Sidney Allard bought these crate motors and fitted them into Allard's. Who worked at Allard's doing it? A guy called Zora Arkus Duntov. He was a Russian. Came to England after World War II as an immigrant. Well, Zora ends up at the Motorama Fair in New York in 1953, and he's much taken with the beauty of the new Corvette. He thought that was a fantastic little car. 
But when he looks under the hood and he sees that pretty ghastly blue streak engine, he got himself a job at GM and eventually ended up in the uh, Corvette department there. And he's responsible for slotting a nice V8 engine, one of their 55 short blocks, into the Corvette. And so he got the idea of putting V8 power into the VET from Allard, and Shelby got the same idea from Allard too. So in many ways, Allard is the grandfather of both the Corvette and the Cobra. Shelby, I, when he was alive, told me that. He actually admitted that if he would give credit to anyone for the thought, it had to be Sidney Allard. That's a good story. That's interesting. We mm. know these kind of things because, you know, we have to, as the Cobra is considered to be a really wonderful all-American car. Uh, we just got to mention that, you know, the uh, DNA comes from Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, um, Anson, let's just go back to, you mentioned Zora Dundov. Now, Zora Dundov actually was a race car driver at one point in time. One, didn't he do some racing? But he raced um, European sports cars? He did. He, he Zora Arkus Dantov raced considerably in Europe, um, large part in Porsches. He was a very good Porsche driver, and he, he helped to put them on the map in their early days. And he was always sort of escaping from everything he got involved in to, to go and race. And I, I think that Zora's um, ability to handle a car in racing terms and to understand the technicalities of those cars, that's what put him in the you know, hundred buck seats for working at GM. And, he did, and that, that's how he learned his stuff. Uh, he learned it firsthand from doing it. Oh, he was a road racer. Oh, yeah, no, he went out. He, he, he knew the Nürburgring pretty well, and uh, I think he raced at Spa. I think he went to Le Mans, for that matter. I mean, I'd have to sort of check him out, but um, uh, just to the top of my head, uh, he, he had been at many of the major European racetracks, and, and he knew them pretty well. Uh, he certainly was a good Nürburgring man, and anybody that can get a quick lap in round the ring is to be taken seriously, because it, it's a whole bunch of track, 14 and an odd miles to learn a lap and uh, I think that the Nürburgring always was indicative of a driver's ability especially if it's raining. Witness Jackie X's performances in the uh, German Grand Prix when he's actually 1966 I think it was, he's actually driving a Formula 2 car and uh, he ends up at one stage being third or fourth overall in the the race. Um, uh, Then his car broke down but I mean you can soon tell who can drive and who can't when it comes to places like the ring in the wet. Spa too. Spa was always, for me, the most frightening place in the world, especially when it was thundering down with rain. Now, you would talk about some tracks. So you raced at, N- at Nürburgring, right? I raced at the... Yeah, I did. I've done all those European tracks. I mean, uh, the Nürburgring and Spa, uh, Mugello was a road race. Uh, Villarreal in Portugal was a road race. Uh, Le Mans, obviously. Um, Targa Flora, you raced there too, right? Yeah, the Targa. That, that was my favorite race of all time because it was, it was you in a car and just a, an open piece of road with very little to protect you other than your own sense of uh, survival. And you could ask people who were good there, like like Vic Elford's Brilliant and, and Brian Redman, if you ask them for tips, they would give you tips, obviously. Though you're only an amateur driver. You're not going to be a threat to them. And I remember Vic said to me, you know, drive it like you're being chased by the cops. <laughs> <laughs> you mustn't crash. And he said that the only tip I'll give you is if you see a crowd of people in the distance on an apex, you know that's where they're expecting someone to come off. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So he said, just take extra care when you see lots of people gathered on a turn. Good advice, because the, the, the Sicilians knew where all the hairy bits were, where the camber goes the wrong way, or whatever, or there might be a nasty drop on the other side. And um, they knew very well that they might see something if they if they hung out there. Not all of them, obviously, but so it was quite a good piece, piece of advice. I never learned, I, it was a 
25 mile lap and the last four miles were just a straight piece of road a balls out straight back to the pits and uh, I had an accident there uh, my my only really bad accident I ever had was right there um, in that Targa Florio race but I, I still love the event I was down there early this year uh, we started making a documentary TV show about the early days of the Targa it started in 1906 so until they stopped it in 1975 I think it was um, it was the oldest road race in the world well I, it is still the oldest road race in the world I think you as a driver okay and talking about some of those open road races like the Mille Mille or like Targa Floria for example and you had spectators standing that close was that ever a concern of yours I mean or are you so focused on driving that you know you you're 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 really not cognizant of it or or what happens what goes on in your mind that's a good question too um i have to say my job was to keep my car on the blacktop and the spectator's job is to try and ensure that he doesn't get clobbered if anybody flies off and i never ever thought about it i mean the only reason why the spectators would be significant for me is if i saw a bunch of them in the distance and i knew i might consider just backing off slightly here because that's what that's what vic said i should do um but god forbid we'd come off and hit them when i had my bad accent what i discovered this year this is this is quite interesting my accident took place on the long straight um my right front hand wheel the stub axle broke and the wheel i wasn't going massively quickly 165 or 70 whatever those little two liter lolas used to do but the wheel snapped off and it burst through the bodywork and hit me on the head so i'm knocked out completely and the car is then it hits the barriers on one side i think then it it winds up hits a wall and it comes to rest and it's it's on fire and i had always understood that i was chucked out of the car uh, one of the one of the impacts but i wasn't what i discovered this year 42 years after the event is that as i came to a halt there was a guy standing in front of his house watching the race a sicilian gentleman he'd been a sicilian soldier in world war ii had to fight up on the russian front so he was obviously a pretty brave guy he runs down to the burning car undoes my seatbelt, oblivious to the flame and pulls me out the car saves my life and this year when i was down there filming i'm in a little targa florier museum and his son who's 54 now his daughter and all their children have come to meet me because their father got a medal for bravery for saving my life but no one ever told me i I did not know that this gentleman had hauled me out of the car so i i ended up with their grandchildren sort of sitting on my knee watching watching targa florio movies but I, i found that very very emotional because up and until that time i had lived for 42 years thinking i was chucked out of the car and i and then a, a helicopter comes to pick me up and um i get i get taken off to the local hospital and uh, and brian had a terrible accident there where he managed to get out of his porsche 908 but he got very badly burnt around his face he still got the goggle marks around his eyes if you look closely on him and uh, he was in the hospital with me um and uh, there's one or two quite interesting stories around all that but they're there for another time but um yeah <laughs> that's uh, an amazing so, bit of history there that's amazing that you found that out yeah. yes i just found out 42 years after the race i find out that i've had my life saved by a sicilian and um, i'm needless to say i'm very fond of sicilians anyway and it, I, I can highly recommend to any of your listeners if you're going to europe to have a holiday if you can get down to sicily and go to the madonai park it is one of the most beautiful parks i have ever been to there are three 
there's the, the big circuit, the medium circuit, and the little Madonai circuit. It's the little Madonai circuit, 45 miles, that we used to race around. But they're all there, and all those bends and twists and turns of all three circuits are still there. You can get a car and drive around, and, and it, it, it is just topographically beautiful. It really is. Uh, volcanic valleys and all the most beautiful things you'd expect to see. And I highly recommend folk to go and see it because um, it's very special. Now, that race took place on the north side of the island, correct? It wasn't on the south side like where Taramina is? It was on the north side of the island, and basically the Madonai Park is, I think, 300 square miles or something like that, or 300 square kilometers maybe of park. That is a national park, and all three of the great Targa circuits are placed within that park. The one they used in 1906, and then the other circuits up to, I think, 1973, I think, was the last race there. Ferrari won it with their PBs. Arturo Mezzario, I think, was the driver with um, uh, one of those Italian rally drivers, I think. I can't remember which one now. But if you ask any driver who drove the Targa for real, they will all tell you that was that was a proper, real driver's open road race. You're on, you're on public roads with the, with the public present, doing your best to uh, keep the thing straight and keep it on the blacktop. That's amazing, amazing racetrack. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Um, did you, so we were talking about rallies, or you reference rallies as well. Did you ever race any rallies? Um, not what you would call a proper rally, no. I mean, I've, I've done things like the um, Carrera Panamericana, which is a sort of road race stroke rally where, you, where you're dealing with timed sections and things like that. Okay. Um, that's a heck of a thing, too, I have to say. But I, I never did what you would call a, a proper um, you know, world championship type rally or anything like that. It's a, it's a, rally driving is a very special, God-given discipline. I, I'm not too sure that really serious rally drivers aren't by far the finest car controllers in the world. Uh, when, you, when you look at what great rally drivers are able to achieve, I mean, they are unbelievable. The, 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 the way they drive their cars, the risks that they take, the control that they have. I think, and, and you never quite know in a rally car if the uneven surface is the same here as it was back there or it's going to be over there. In other words, you're dealing with changing situations all the time. When you look at track racing on that day in that car at that track everything is reasonably consistent and so you hone your performance to set spectacular times with all kinds of aids to help you do that very special skill needed but at least it's consistent rally driving is everything but consistent because you never quite know what's coming your way i i think those guys are the uh, amongst the bravest of all competition drivers without any doubt and and i i think likely the most skillful of all we got a few minutes left i want to talk a little bit about your your tv show at one point in time when you, you know after your racing career you know you're involved with espn and speed vision you did some reporting and stuff like that i also remember seeing you on uh, tv you were doing you were covering bear jackson and then you had this one show it was called uh, victory by design and now your current tv show is called renaissance man so tell us a little bit about renaissance man and uh, how that show came to fruition well renaissance man was the idea uh, brought up that was that's just the title of it but what we do in Renaissance Man, going to examine um, things like Great Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn's the uh, oldest racetrack in the world.
world, but they're still kind of vaguely standing. Uh, we would take Brooklyn's motorcycles down there, Bruffs and Bruff Superiors, and do a show. I did a show on the Merlin engine, which kind of helped to win World War II very much. Uh, Spitfires and uh, Hurricanes, Sterling and Lancaster bombers, and the P-51D, for instance. Uh, done a show on World Rally Championship car, the little mini that um, ProDrive uh, built, uh, sort of BMW's little hot rod. Um, Renaissance Man is about really interesting things, discovering interesting things in transport. And uh, the old, um, what was it called? HD Theatre, Discovery's HD Theatre. They changed the name to Velocity Channel. And quite by chance, the uh, programming director there, uh, whom I I had known at Speed Vision, um, is obviously a very keen erudite fellow. And he thought that this this sort of programming uh, is much needed because no one else is showing it. Um, when, when Speed took over Speed Vision, it all became NASCAR. NASCAR, morning, noon, and night. Uh, nothing wrong with that. If you are a NASCAR fan and you, you enjoy NASCAR, how nice. You've got a pretty dedicated channel. But there's still an awful lot of bums on seats that wanted the kind of menu that they'd had at Speed Vision. And we had Legends of Motorsport and Victory by Design and all kinds of really interesting, uh, historically uh, worthwhile programming. And so I think that what Velocity was doing is picking up maybe where Speed Vision was left off. And so what Renaissance Man is, is a similar style, similar formula package where you have someone, in, in this case me, just looking at lovely things, either modern things, the way they're built, historical things, what they did, how they did it, what their contribution to uh, the history of motorsport or the history of aviation or the history of uh, transport in general. So that's what that series of shows is is meant to be about. The show that you had before that, Victory by Design, tell us a little bit about that one. Well, that that series was first muted by Roger Werner, uh, who is the guy who, as you may know, he sort of put ESPN together originally, and then he put Speed Vision together, and he's always had a vision for what he thinks the public will like, and which is large part, I think, what he thinks he will like, because, you know, he's got, he's got a, a good eye for a car, and he's got good taste in programming. And he, he thought it would be an exciting thing to try to do a potted history of Porsche. So we kicked off... Uh, making in Europe these are nearly all made in Europe these shows um, a show about the history of Porsche and we got we got cooperation from the factory well we just did the first one and he put it out Victory by Design Porsche and everybody loved it so we then did Victory by Design Ferrari and that went down really well so we then got on with some more Alfa Romeo Aston um, Maserati Jaguar what else did we do we did Ford muscle cars I did Corvette uh, we started with Grand Prix cars doing a show. We've done the first half so far. Um, but I was particularly keen because my, my, my all-time favorite mark of car is Alfa Romeo. I, I have this very special connection with Alfa Romeo. And when we came to do the Alfa Romeo show, we had to have factory support because they own one or two cars. We never get our hands on any other way. And uh, we went to Balocco near Turin. It's the uh, Fiat, big Fiat test track that Alfa Romeo use. And <clears throat> the one great car I had never driven and always wanted to was the Alfetta the Type 
Type 159 that won the world championship in 1951 for one Manuel Fangio. Well, when I get there, I'm darned if uh, the car's not there. We drive, I drive all kinds of really beautiful old 8C Alphas, the uh, the P3, uh, the P2 is there. We've got some Juliettas, we've got TI, we've got all the good stuff that Alpha did, TZs, TZs, but there's no Alfetta. Anyway, after lunch, oh, I met at, lun- at lunchtime, I met the chairman of Alfa Romeo at that time, and uh, he said he'd been watching us filming, and he was very impressed. And he said, after lunch, we have a special surprise for you. Anyway, they take me in a car to the infield where the big banking, you can see all around the banking, there's a little hut. And as we approach the hut, I can smell uh, alcohol and bean oil, the old Castrolar. I thought, what the heck's all this about? Anyway, we'll open the door, and guess what's in there? The Alfetta, the 159. That's Fangio's actual car, and he won the Barcelona Grand Prix, or the Spanish at uh, Barcelona in 51. That's what he won his world championship in. It's all warmed up. There's two mechanics. They smile at me, and they say, uh, Senor de Cadene, for you, the Alfetta. What an honor. So I jump in that car, and I have, I have to say, had one of the most glorious afternoons of my life. Well, Alan, those are great stories. I really want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I truly okay. appreciate it. And you okay. take care, and hopefully we'll see you again in some of the events here in the United States. You may yeah. be in Amelia Island, but I really, really, truly enjoyed having the interview with you. It was yeah. really great. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. They did ask me if I could come over to do Amelia, so I may well do that. We'll Super. Well, then we'll see okay. you in March. Yep, thank you. All right, have a good trip home. You too. Farewell. Bye-bye. Well, that about wraps it up. Hey, what a great interview that was with Alan DeCadene. What an extraordinary guy. Be sure and tell your friends to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars every Wednesday at 7 p.m. for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. And check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. And if you've missed any of our past shows, be sure and go to our podcast. You can hear all the shows. They're archived right there with pictures and text and audio. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, love your family, and we'll see you at some of the car shows. Take care, everyone. Downtown Day. I'm not here to make a record, you jump cracker. It broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You jump cracker.